Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Hebrew scriptures, and the name for it comes from the Greek and can be translated as second law or repeated law. Now, after the exciting stories found in the books of Genesis and Exodus, like creation, the great flood, sibling rivalry, and those questioning uh, examples of parenting that we find where parents prefer one child over the other, well, the next three books of the Pentateuch that include laws and exhortations, those can seem to be about as exciting as reading a legal brief. If we dig deeper in today's scripture, we learn that Moses is sharing his final piece of wisdom before the Israelites enter the land of Canaan without him. In my mind, I picture him like an anxious parent sending a child off to sleepaway camp for the first time, or maybe sending their student off to college their freshman year. No, Moses is kind of running alongside the car as it's backing out of the driveway. Johnny, don't forget to brush your teeth and change your underwear every day. Or maybe, Sally, be sure to have a friend walk you home at night. The Israelites were being called to listen and to obey. Moses distills down the hundreds of previous commandments given to them into a succinct direction of how to go forward without him and so that they do not forget what it looks like and what it feels like to love God. In essence, Moses was giving the Israelites an instruction booklet of practical ways to keep their love for God in the forefront of how they live their lives. Which sounds great, but I don't know about the rest of you. I rarely read the instruction booklets that come with my items. So I'm hoping today as we listen, that perhaps we can give these instructions a chance. The scripture reading today is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children May fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Would you please pray with me? 
Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified in your sight. For you, O God, are our rock, and you are our redeemer. Amen. In the 2010 movie version of Alice in Wonderland, there's a scene between the Mad Hatter and Alice. In it, the Mad Hatter is trying to figure out and understand what's different about Alice since the last time that he saw her. He says to Alice, you're not the same as you were before. You were much more muchier. You've lost your muchness. Alice questions him, my muchness? To which the Mad Hatter replies as he points to her heart, in there, something's missing. Today's scripture includes the ancient Hebrew prayer known as the Shema. The Shema gets its name from the Hebrew words to listen or to hear. Interestingly enough, there is no separate word in Hebrew for obey. So in this context, to listen is to obey. The Hebrew prophets despaired of the Israelites because they have ears, but they do not listen. And Jesus echoed this sentiment when the disciples asked why he preached in parables. As we listen to these words, just as the Israelites did thousands of year ago, years ago, we contemplate what it looks like to love God in these ways. The Israelites understood the three key terms of heart, soul, and might differently than we commonly do today. They had no concept of brain, but considered the heart to be the center of all human experience. Through the heart, feelings and desires were not only experienced, but had a direct correlation on one's actions. To feel with one's heart was more than a sentiment. It was a call to translate those feelings into action. Next, the soul. For the Israelites, the soul referred to the whole person, one's entire physical existence rather than just a separate spirit contained within a body. We are called to love and praise God with our whole selves. And finally, the Hebrew word ma'od. It's used to describe strength or might in this passage. Rather than meaning muscle power, it's a word that augments or intensifies the meaning of other words just as the words very, or really, or muchier do. Moses is emphasizing how much the Israelites were to love God with their total capacity of their hearts and their souls. Have you ever humorously thought that you needed to tattoo something on your forehead to remind yourself to do it? Moses is saying, yep, if that's what it takes for you not to forget. However, the reminders are not just for individuals or for households. These reminders are communal. 
Post them not only on the doorpost of your home, but also on the gates of your village. Recite them as you go to bed and as you wake up. But also, teach your children, not only at home, but when you're away. Moses isn't able to go with these people who he has led for decades in the wilderness. He knows the temptations they will face. He's seen the idols that they create and worship when he's only just gone up the mountain to have some quality time with God. He has experienced how easy it is to fall into doubt, to become frustrated, to lose heart, to overextend himself, to get lost. Without God's guiding pillar of cloud in the day, and pillar of fire in the night, they would have been lost in the wilderness. Without God's commandments, they would be lost in another way, should they forget to listen and follow the paths that connect them to the vitality, strength, and goodness of God's love. The term commandment holds a sort of authoritarian feel for me that naturally puts my back up a little. It's so easy to think of laws as being restrictive and limiting, even if they're for our own good. Many years ago, when I was a part of our Moms and Psalms group, a group of fellowship and Bible study here at our church, there was another mom that shared something that she had heard that really impacted the way she thought about laws. I'm probably not going to get this exactly right, but I think you'll understand the nature of what I share. She said, we shouldn't stop at a stop sign because it's the law. We should stop at a stop sign because it keeps us safe and others as well. However, Jesus knew that enumerating a list of commandments and laws was not the way to capture the hearts of the people. That simply following the laws to the letter was an easy way to lose the spirit and the intention of God's instructions. The parable of the Good Samaritan is probably the parable that we teach the most in church school. In this parable, a man a legal expert in the commandments, asked Jesus how he could attain eternal life. And Jesus responds, as he oh so often does, with a question of his own. What's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? For some reason, when I picture the man responding with his answer that he knows is the right answer, I get this feeling that he might be a little bit smug, as he says referring directly back to Moses' instructions. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In the message version of the Bible, Jesus' response to him is, good answer! Now, I don't know about you, but I kept getting this feeling like I was watching the family feud when I read that. But the religious scholar doesn't drop it. He wants a little more clarity. Maybe he wants to find a loophole. Who is actually my neighbor? 
So then Jesus shares the story about a man set upon by bandits, robbed, beaten, left for dead on the road. This man is not only left for dead by the robbers, but by two other travelers who pass him by, two other travelers who know God's laws, two other travelers who are examples to the community of how to live a righteous and pious life. But then a hated Samaritan comes by and shows mercy. He cares for the man and he takes him to a place of healing and safety. This parable that Jesus shares is an example of what loving God in action looks like. For anyone that's tried to teach or lead a meeting via the video platform Zoom and was faced with a black, blank screen and silence, you know the difficulty of teaching or leading in that situation. It feels like one is trying to get a response from a black hole. It's draining, it's disconcerting, and there's a sensation of talking to yourself. Is there anybody out there? There's a give and take between the person sharing and those who are receiving. Stories need both storytellers and listeners. Stories are participatory. Stories are not passive, but rather foster action of the spirit and then ideally morphs into actions in our lives. Now, with that set up about the relationship between the storyteller and the listeners, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. Imagine, if you will, you are in a room filled with warmth, and light is shining down on you like a kiss. A candle is lit. Soft music is playing. There's the scent of incense in the air. You're in your stockinged feet because this is a sacred place. You're seated amongst friends. You are not only listening to the story of the birth of Jesus, but you are holding in your hand a smooth piece of wood, soft to the touch, but substantial. Perhaps this piece of wood represents the donkey. Perhaps it represents Mary. It may even represent baby Jesus. You are listening to the story closely because what you have in your hands is a part of the story. It's time. Now is the moment for you, the moment when you come forward to place your piece of the story alongside the other pieces that make the whole just as you are part of the whole. You are part of the story. You are part of a family of faith. In that moment, you exclaim, this is the best story ever. Next, imagine if you will, you're in a darkened room. You're seated in an upholstered chair, just like you would find in the old time movie theaters. 
you might need an extra cushion under your caboose because the chair keeps trying to fold up on you. But you don't really mind because you've got a bag of popcorn and your own juice box that may or may not be overflowing into your lap. Who knows what vegetables have to do with stories in the Bible, but you're more than willing to watch and find out. The room is silent except for the munching of popcorn. You can't see the teacher who's in the back of the room frantically trying to get the AV that worked perfectly on Friday to play both the audio and the video. But then, as the video begins this morning, rather than silly songs singing greens and crucifers, there are colorful yet gentle images that shape a story for your eyes. There is a narrator using a variety of voices to share a story for your ears. There is a man with a gentle face, a man who gave his life so that others may live. He gave his life for no other reason than because these beings are loved by God. The wonder of this sacrifice spurs you to ask out loud, is this story true? Well, friends, both of those stories were true and are just a couple of examples of some of the time we spend together with the church school. My friend and mentor, Kathy Elsesser, who supported me and taught me as I learned how to be the director of Christian education, almost quit volunteering in church school after the first year of my tenure. I had opted to use the new UCC curriculum that had just been published. It had modules of multiple age and combined age groups for young children through adults. The topics included things like praying and making ritual, keeping Sabbath, playing and living joyfully, experiencing beauty. Now, maybe you can tell where this is going by the tone of my voice, but at that time, I thought, what could be better than teaching our children these very things? Kathy worked alongside me through that first year, and at the end, she graciously shared with me the importance of teaching with stories, not with topics. Those lessons from the curriculum sounded important, and they were. But without being grounded in the stories of our faith, they were difficult to teach and they were difficult for the children to connect with. After this less than stellar first year, we then created a three-year scope and sequence of stories to share with the children from kindergarten through grade five. And for the past 11 years, we've continued to use this template while continually updating it and tweaking it with new resources and ideas. One such lesson is about Passover where the children can taste and smell and touch the components of a Seder meal. Another lesson, after sharing the story of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, the children have the opportunity to wash each other's feet and hands. You would be surprised how many kids are interested in washing someone else's feet. These are just a few ways that we share stories using action. When we pause to consider the instructions that Moses gave to the Israelites, there is an echo within our own practices 
and story sharing. Actions paired with words. Muscle memory is a spiritual practice. As we continue to emerge from the pandemic, families are able to expand outwards again to engage with their neighbors and friends and church. The past three months have been especially full of joy as we welcome new families and old friends to church school on Sunday mornings. And as Pastor Seth can attest, receiving a spontaneous hug from a little one is a great day to start your Sunday morning. Our nurseries reopened. We're preparing to return to our fully realized vacation Bible school with five churches. We're reimagining a church weekend away at Tower Hill Camp for everyone. We are reconnecting with each other with a depth of feeling that is more powerful than many of us expected. Once again, as we can expand our community beyond our own walls, worshiping with joy, teaching with joy, learning with joy, singing with joy, and sharing stories with joy. That's a lot of use of the word joy. My inner critic encourages me to pull out my thesaurus and swap it out with something more creative. But as I reflect on the Shema and the call to love the Lord our God with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my might, I find that joy might just be more than a word. It could be more than a feeling. It could be an invitation. I do not want us to be the same as we were before. I want us to be much more muchier. I want us to be much more joyful, joyfuler. I don't want us to be missing something in here. As we come together in community, may we recognize that listening is just the beginning, that feeling is a spur, and that acting and being present and telling stories are the ways that we keep God's commandments in our hearts and on our foreheads, in our homes, and in the world. We keep God's commandments when we teach our children well. Amen.